Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk podcast. We help you build a thriving creative practice. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza! You can stay up to date with all things Creative Pep Talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's get into this episode. I really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're gonna be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was gonna tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, antijpizza.com if you wanna see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Ushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. Before we get started, uh, this is part three of a four-part Creative Elixir series that we're doing. What is a Creative Elixir, you might be asking. Well, I can't hear you because it's a podcast. It's a one-way conversation. And I said it's about Creative Elixir, so shut up and listen. Um, No, I'll answer that that question. Uh, A Creative Elixir is your creative gift. You see, every hero has to say yes to a journey to finding the gift that will save their people. But they also have to say yes, once they've found their gift, to the journey of bringing it home and convincing their people that this is the cure. So there's two yeses in every hero's journey, and I believe there's two yeses in every creative journey. In a creative journey, the first yes is the yes to finding and developing your true creative gift. There's a lot of people that are trying to give away a gift that's not really crafted or, you know, that's hollow. It's like a snake oil salesman. Um, They didn't say yes to the first part. The second yes, after they've went out, they've they've found what they're really good at, what they're passionate about, what they're unique at, and they've developed it into something great that uh, that 
certain types of people want. And so the second yes is for the hero and the creative is to find those certain types of people. It's, it's equally important and it's equally important in the creative process. This yes is getting your creative gift to the people that are desperate for it. The people that are waiting to consume this kind of stuff. Um, and it's, and it's, can this second yes is convincing them to give it a shot. The first yes is about figuring out how to make great creative work that really is a gift. And the second yes is about essentially marketing. This episode is part three, and it's primarily about the first yes of finding your gift. We're still in that yes. In part two, we talked about how your gift is something you already have and that the journey isn't about finding what you don't have. It's about revealing to yourself what you already do. Now, I want to dive deeper into the first yes by talking about your creative class. Maybe editor, you can put some, Jordan, put some crazy, you know, emphasis. Your creative class. I'd like to sound like Zeus or something there. Um, this, <laughs> this episode is kind of like Enneagram or Myers-Briggs or whatever personality type framework that you may have heard of, but for creative people. Now, there's two twists to this personality type thing. One, it's through the lens of fantasy role-playing. Each type is like a, cr- a different fantasy creative class, you know, like a creative knight or a creative wizard, an artsy wizard. Um, The second twist to this is that the purpose of this process isn't actually to give you the answers of who you are. We don't have those answers. Your whole journey is about finding those answers, but it's about giving you good questions that you can ask yourself deep questions that will help you find things about yourself that I could never tell you. Why make it a personality type test if we ultimately believe that no one is really just one of these things? Because making a creative fantasy warrior type test is way more fun than giving you a list of questions. That's actually true. And I had a blast making this, <laughs> this uh, crafting this episode. And I can't wait to uh, share it with you. By the way, this is part of a series, but like an episode of The Office or Parks and Rec or whatever, It may be fun to watch or listen in order, but you're totally able to dip in and out as each episode is designed to stand on its own. All right, let's go. Did your grandma ever tell you, You've just got to meet my neighbor. He is an artist and you guys would just love each other. And doesn't that, I'm sure right now you're listening to it, you're cringing. You're like, oh dear God, just because we both like art does not mean that we are going to like each other. Art means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And yeah, I feel like we all know that, but so often we allow the what art means to somebody else you know what they value about creativity determine what we make and how we feel about what we make you know even your heroes you know the more i dive into reading and and researching about my heroes the more i realize 
even the people that I respect the most creatively, even those people, we have very different ideas of what creativity is about. And, and if I allow my hero's values to determine my creative output or how I feel about myself as a creative, that I will be lost. You know, I've been reading, I read, I read the Jim Henson biography. Okay. I've been saying that I've been reading it for like a year. I read it and I loved it. It was incredible and I cried a lot. But one thing I thought that was really interesting was Jim Henson and I, uh, how I would like to believe, I would love to believe that, uh, we, we could have been friends. I think we would have been, I, he seemed like an amazing person and we definitely had some overlap in our creative values. For instance, we both like, liked the phonetics of words. Like he really loved the word grackle. I love that word. It's a bird. Um, and I, I get very obsessed with the phonetics of a word to where I'll just say them all the time. You know, Keebler. It's one of my favorite words right now, like Keebler elves. Yes. Um, it's just really, it's got all the good consonants and a good punch to it. It's just funny. But uh, I think primarily what Henson saw as the purpose and, and what, what got him excited about creativity primarily was different to what I consider creativity to be all about for me. I think through this biography, you see like he was obsessed with doing the newest thing. You know, a lot of people I think, you know, would assume that Jim Henson would be really mad about how CGI just swept through and, you know, destroyed the use of pu puppets and practical effects. But the truth is, Henson was one of the first people to pioneer CGI and CGI puppets and, you know, uh, live capture uh, computer graphics. And he was always looking to the future and he was always a, ahead of the pack when it came to technology. That's a lot of what he loved about creative work. And the truth is for me, that doesn't really do it for me. It's not really that interesting to me. Uh, for me, you know, originality and newness, it's, it's kind of how it relates to food. Like, uh, you know, I'm not, I like eating a dish that's something like I've never tasted before, but ultimately food, like creativity, uh, it's, it's sustenance. It's stuff I need to be consuming all the time for my life to make sense and for my life to work. You know, creativity is sustenance for the soul and, and it being unlike anything I've ever seen, that's kind of relegated not to its primary purpose. It's more like making sure the food isn't expired, you know, making sure it's fresh. That's kind of what freshness and newness and creativity is for me. I don't want it to be regurgitated, same old thing I've seen a million times or some ripoff that that's expired and I'm not into that, but I don't need it to be completely different than anything. If anything, I like creativity to remind me of the things that have always been true about being a human. You know, that's kind of what creativity is for me. And yet, you know, it took me a long time and I'm still struggling with this to realize that I have taken on the values of other people. In fact, I think we zero in on the ways that we don't measure up 
in other people's opinions and we put those burdens on us. I believe that when you take on the values of other creatives, this is the source of imposter syndrome, shame, distraction, FOMO, missing your call, you know, going on a side road that you should never have gone down because you're trying to be something that you, for somebody else and not for really anything that you care about. And so figuring out what creativity means to you is so important because that word means so many different things. You know, to Kirby Ferguson, the guy behind the Everything is a Remix series on the internet, you should definitely go check it out. To him, creativity is, well, a remix. Everything is a remix of previous things. And Jim Henson would probably disagree with that. And that they get different things. And I don't think that there's any one answer. I don't think there's any right answer. But I do believe that there are right answers for you of why you got into this, why you care about it, and what you want to bring to the creative table. And so this episode is about defining what is creative work about for you. What is Define creativity for you. Define what it's about and define why you're doing it. And we're going to go through six common creative drives that push creatives. You know, out of all the friends I've met and all the creative people I've studied, I've, I've been working on this episode for probably about a year and trying to codify and create a framework around the, the different creative drives that I've encountered. Some I relate to, some are completely on the other end of the spectrum. And guess what? There's definitely ones outside of this. And, and you're probably at, at the very least a mix of these things. So as we dive into this, I want you to think about picking out what is your major drive and then what's your minor drive, because it's going to be some kind of mixture of those two things. So as you're going through, listen through, see if you can identify friends of yours who are creative and what their drive is, and just intuitively feel it out. Use your feelings, Luke. Which kind of creative class are you? What is creativity all about to you? Because if you can do that, if you can identify it, you can start to feel secure in your creative work and what you're all about and what you're trying to do and not get distracted by the values of your heroes or even worse, your enemies. Because here's what happens when you take on those values. It's like you're a basketball player, but you hang out with so many soccer players that you start feeling self-conscious about touching the ball. You know what I mean? That's what it looks like when you play by other creatives' rules. And if you do that long enough, it is going to throw off your game. So let's figure out what's your game, what type of creative are you. Let's do it. Okay, so these types, there's six types, and three fall in the first category, and three fall into the second category. The first category is external. The second is internal. What do we mean by that? External means these creatives are primarily focused on the, the creativity that happens outside of your body, you know, on the page, with a, you know, a potter's wheel, on a mural, you know, physically in real life stuff. And a lot of creatives that I'm close friends with fall into this category and they're primarily focused, their focus and their values 
are built on the things that you can experience with your senses. The second category is internal. And these are people that are primarily focused on the creativity that happens within your brain, the, the land of ideas. Now, a lot of creative people you know, are like me in Skyrim, the fantasy video game where they've got a sword in one hand, that's the external, and then their other hand has got magical powers. So they're a little bit of both sides, right? Like the external, we're going to call the, like the fighter types. And don't let this throw you off if you're into, you know, you want to be a, I want to be a magic type. It's a game, okay? It's, we're having some fun. Make it fun. Have fun. Is it fun when I'm shouting at you? Um, (laughs) I'm like a, a bad coach. Um, but, uh, you, you know, the, the external, the people that are focused on the in real life types of creative applications primarily, those are going to be your warriors, your fighters. These are people that are a physical brute making stuff with their hands. The internal crowd are the mages, magic, sorcery, the world of ideas, okay? So that's how we break them down. And like I said, you can major in the external and minor in the internal or vice versa. Um, Definitely can be a mix there. So each category, we're going to have the name of it, a little breakdown, the weapons of the trade, skill points, the call of the fighter, common reactions, examples, and shadow skills. That'll make sense in a minute. Let's get to number one, the show-stopping fighter. Okay, to kick off our externally focused creatives, the world building warriors, physical manifestation. Uh, if you, if you will, to kick that off, we have number one, the show stopping fighter, highly skilled with their weapon of choice. These creators stop you in your tracks with their otherworldly levels of craft and talent. Okay. So. Creatives like this, they love the brute force of a supernatural talent. You know, they, they, they love when creativity just, it looks like mystical. How did you do that? They're the type of artist who likes creative work for its ability to push beyond the boundaries of what human skill seems to be capable of. There's a sort of brute force and strength of prowess in these creatives. You know, think about it, the, the weapons of the trade, photorealistic painting or drawing. You know, when you're like, I can't believe that's a drawing. That's the kind of show-stopping talent we're talking about or crazy mind-bending and mind-melting guitar solos that defy the speed of finger work, Uh, math rock drumming, crazy calligraphy, 3D art. You know, a lot of this stuff does well on Instagram when there's a process video where you're watching it happen and you're like, how is the sum of these parts creating that end. It's blowing my mind, man. A show-stopping fighter. That's what they like about creativity is how you can learn these techniques or develop these techniques and these talents and do stuff that totally blows people away just by the sheer talent of it. All right. Skill points. I should say these skill points, they're they're arbitrary numbers. It's just, it's just for fun. But uh, they, I think each one I'm listing some things that are kind of innate to the type of person that is able to pull this stuff off. So 
plus 17 points in raw talent. Usually the show-stopping fighter has some freakish propensity or, you know, has unlocked through crazy work and, and experiments these insane te techniques. 21 points, discipline, because they're usually people who this stuff has happened because they've spent hours and hours and hours and hours bleeding their fingers, man, with the guitar or what have you. Uh, blood, sweat and tears. Blood. 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 Um, can we get that just to repeat a few times, Jordan? Blood, 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 blood. blood, 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 blood. Okay. Um, I guess I just did it. <laughs> uh, do whatever you want with that. Num plus 15 in focus. They got to be focused over the long haul, and they usually have a narrow focus of like, this is my lane. Um, the call of the fighter, this fighter, uh, what it does to other – and when we talk about the call of the fighter, this is kind of like the why. Why this type of creativity matters to them and then ultimately to all of us. Well, one, it shows human potential. It, it expands our wonder. Uh, when we see somebody doing something we didn't know was possible, it opens our minds to what's possible for us and what's possible for our species. And, and there's just this amazing thing that happens when we are uh, awe-inspired inspired by somebody showcasing things we didn't know are humanly possible. It's almost like our art as a sport. You know, there's certain people, consumers of art, that they have a hard time with the subjectivity of, you know, poetry or, or things that are a lot softer. But this is something that a lot of people can get down with and really love is, you know, oh, I can't imagine doing that. And therefore, I'm like deferring this awe and, and adoration. It enraptures people in wonder, which I think is almost always a good thing. Frank... Camaro would say that out of all the thing, all the negative things that a designer can do with their design, you know, propaganda and tricking people and selling products and whatever, that one of the most pure things they can do that's very hard to do for the wrong reasons is just delight people. And that this the the show-stopping fighter can do that. They can get and keep attention. They're really good at stopping you in your tracks and being like, whoa, what's happening? You ever – a show-stopping fighter that I really like are the people that, you know, do crazy loops on stage and they're like a one-man band with all the looping – guitar loops and stuff. You ever seen someone really get into that? It's a show-stopping occasion. Common reactions to this type of creativity. How do they do that? Wow. What? <laughs> That's how people might respond to your art. If you want people to respond to your art like that, you might be a show-stopping fighter. Um, I have a feeling I'm going to get into the whole uh, Jeff Foxworthy thing again. If you like when people <laughs> – why well, he's always – he's not – I don't know how to do just like a country guy now. It's always like a country guy, uh, old prospector version. Um, if you like to make people say, whoa, you might be a show-stopping fighter. Examples of the show-stopping fighter. You know, the first one I use is Bob Ross because we talked about him in previous episodes of this series and, you know, how he can take a brushstroke and just make it look like a whole forest of trees with just like the littlest flick of the wrist. That's show-stopping, man. Um, you know, guitarist Jimi Hendrix, Michael Jackson, the way that he would dance, what felt like an alien. Maybe he was. I don't know. Photorealistic color pencil artist C.J. Henry. If you haven't seen C.J. Henry's stuff on Instagram, go check it out. It's mind-melting. Uh, then we're going to go to the shadow skill. The shadow skill is kind of a subversion of the purpose of each 
individual uh, class. And I think the shadow skill is almost the way that it elevates and transcends what we think of as these things. So for the show-stopping creative, I think that the shadow skill is the bait and switch. They stop the show by, you know, C.J. Henry doing this incredible colored pencil drawing that looks like a photo, a vibrant HD, mind-blowing photo. But then what's behind, the heart behind it, once they get your attention, they get you to listen to their message or they get you to figure out what the concept is behind it. And so I think the shadow skill of the show-stopping fighter is the bait and switch. That's them at their maybe most trickster in the traditional archetype way um, and, and, and the most powerful maybe thing that you can do with this thing. Um, yeah, let's go to number two. Number two in our external world building warriors of physical manifestation. <laughs> the, the second one is the sensory artificer, unlocking the powers and objects. Artificers literally build our world with a passion for pleasing the senses. These creators make our world more beautiful and more functional. These creative people, these are the people that are very in tune with their senses, color, light, taste, touch, smell, sound, even just how physical reality creates a vibe and impacts us through our senses. Sometimes it's a little bit, feels even beyond the senses, but we're picking up all this, all these different senses and it comes together to be this synesthetic vibe. And those, these are the people that are in tune with them. For them, creative work is about connection through our senses, weapons of the trade. Cooking's an obvious one that's playing on your, your sense of taste and smell. And but almost, you know, all great creative chefs are playing on almost every sense, including the setting in which you devour that cooking, cooked food. Um, <laughs> uh, watercolor or textile art, you know, color, texture, the, the way it feels, like all that, all that good stuff. Product design ceramics, interior decorating, creating a setting, some skill points for the sensory artificer, 25 points, super senses. A lot of these people have just incredible depth of, you know, flavor profiles for all their senses, whether it's their eyes or their ears or their touch or their, you know, all the other ones. I don't know which ones I said. Um, but usually, you know, that creativity is informed by a depth of reception, reception, not just what they can do. You know, a, a cook, Gordon Ramsay would say, starts with great taste. It's about you can't make good food if you can't taste good food. So that's that's your that's how you that's your metal detector for mm, this is the good stuff. So they almost always have super senses. Uh, you know, th think less about uh, ability, think more about sensibility. 18 points, good with their hands. Usually these are people that uh, that just, you know, a lot of these people are handy uh, with their hands. Uh, 16 
points for empathy. They can they can feel how others might feel when they're uh, accosted with their crazy color palette or how they're soothed by the setting that they've created. There's always there's always a a degree of being able to put themselves in other people's shoes by what they experience and what they feel. The call of the artificer. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Dungeons and Dragons people come mock me. Uh, but the artificer making our physical world, that's what they're all about. They're constructing. They're literally constructing our world, enriching our world with color and texture or, you know, uh, curing the disease of ugly. So it's not just about adding. Sometimes it's subtractive as Massimo Vignelli, the famous designer would say, his job was to cure the disease of ugly that's in the world of just, you know, the the, the crap that we create that's ugly or sometimes that's not about adding, enriching. For some artificers, it's about taking away minimalism, you might uh, say. And then also creating settings, functional and pleasing, that allow connection and flourishing. You know, when I go to my favorite restaurant in town, uh, North Star, the setting is, it, it feels almost holy to me it, as we're partaking in the meal. There's something, the music and the, the color and the architecture literally has been so thoughtfully planned and it creates a social lubrication. Uh, <laughs> and I suggest anytime using that word that you can just go ahead and try to fit it in there without having to qualify it like I just did. Um, but it does. It creates this. It's so I feel like I've had so many great conversations in that setting. And there are so you know, there's I have friends uh, who are product designers that they're so easily distracted. They have that sensitivity, that sensibility by, you know, bad design or distracting colors or busyness or whatever. And they're able to build a world where other people aren't being distracted, even when they re won't, didn't realize they were. It's a beautiful, powerful, deep, to me, a deep, beautiful gift for humanity. Um, common reactions. How lush. So thoughtful. It's a sensation. <laughs> if you want people to say that about your work, you might be an artificer. Examples. Textile artist, Sophie Miller, my wife. I believe that this might be her major might be your minor. She, you know, she's very, she's very in her senses. I live in my head. I live in another universe half the time, but she is grounded. She grounds me. It sounds like something I would say in my vows. Maybe, maybe if we ever do a, you know, rededication in the vows, I'll say, you ground me. Cause she does in her senses. She's, she's overwhelmed by her senses and uh, they're very important to her. Like getting every, all setting, a, uh, uh, setting a setting and, and creating a place and that's why she loves making textile art is the color and the texture. And she actually, you know, she, she makes this fine art and it's kind of a bummer that, you know, people don't touch fine art or it can damage the art because that's so much about what it is for her. Product designer, Dieter Rams, glass artist, Chihuly, Alexander Calder, sculptor, uh, light artist, James Terrell. And then, you know, these experiences like Meow, Meow Wolf and Color Factory, I feel like that's a lot about, you know, taking things away and adding things and creating a setting. Shadow skill. This is the shadow skill of the artificer. Shock the system. Play with sensory like an illusionist. You know, a lot of musicians that are deeply sensitive to sound, they like to turn it up, turn all this stuff on its head and shock you 
with senses. And, you know, horror films are sometimes like this, like just shocking your visuals. And there's, you know, just because you're an artificer doesn't mean you're trying to create a utopia. Sometimes it's about creating a dystopia to to prove a point or to say something surprising by, you know, assaulting the senses. And that's a totally way to subvert this particular leaning. So that is the sensory or sensitive artificer. Okay, number three, and the final one of our externally focused world building warriors of physical manifestation. The, I can't, I can't say that, seriously. Number three is the careful cleric. For the cleric, the divine is in the details. These creators bring attention to their art through painstaking attention to the details. Okay, these creatives can seem obsessive in the way they delight others by spending enormous amounts of time of disciplined effort to create a dramatic effect. These are the people that will spend insane amounts of focused energy, often doing monotonous work to a wow factor effect. Weapons of the trade, we're talking about stitch and embroidery, pointillism, line work, animation, mosaic, even in the world of, you know, film and, and uh, y- y- you know, music. It's what These people are the people that will just do something over and over with crazy precision. And they're obsessed with the effect that comes from that kind of laboring over a creative work. Skill points. 27 points iron will. They just have cra- – they use their, you know – I, in the past, there's times where I just – I used my iron will to make up for some lacking of raw talent. And I think that that's – that can be totally fine. And often that iron will turns into raw talent. Uh, 22 points, Zen spirit. A lot of these people, they go into a Zen meditation as they zone out to watching the whole X-Files for the 80th time as they sit there and needlepoint for hours and hours and hours. For them, that's a big part of the creative process, this idea of the Zen spirit, the, the, the meditation of f- making a piece. Uh, and then 17 points focus. They're able to just zone out and really go into that moment for long periods of time. The call of the cleric is to delight with detail. You know, I feel like there's this, there's just this awe that happens when you watch that someone has given something their attention and their life force. You know, my buddy Kyle Sheely, who made this giant uh, cardboard dragon that he burnt to the ground. Uh, the 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 talent and the craft of the design of the head of the dragon and the and the ship. Like there's so much talent and 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 beauty and that creativity. But then the individual scales and applying them. That's that careful cleric. When you see like from far away, you see this dragon. You're like, wow, that's amazing. But then close up, you're like, whoa, the detail and the 
the love and care and attention. And there's just something that's so powerful to humans about that kind of love and attention. You know, the careful cleric, the call of onslaughting and overwhelming the the senses and the wow factor that happens with a cleric's work. Common reactions, whoa, no way. I'm speechless. How did you do this? If you want want people to say that, you might be a cleric. Uh, Examples, textile artist Amina Robinson, pointillist, Georges Seurat, painter Chuck Close, you know, he's the guy who he does these giant portraits that are made up of these tiny little paintings. Uh, illustrator Kate Bingham and Burt, a friend of mine, she did a project where she was, I think, $25,000 in credit card debt. And she decided until she paid that off, she was going to draw her credit card statement that came in the mail with line work, like verbatim, just just draw it freehand. And then she did a show where she showcased all of those credit card drawings. And it was just something so powerful. You could feel the weight of the debt through that art, like a, like a poem. It, it was, and it was, it was through the, the painstaking detail that she got this message across the weight of debt, the, the power of being a consumer. It was beautiful. Um, Rube Goldberg artist, you know, any of these people that create these elaborate machines that, you know, this thing, the bowling ball falls down the shelf and hits the egg and cracks open like that. That's the careful cleric shadow skill. Again, sometimes the way they subvert this is they spend so much attention. They can call attention to something by paying attention. You know, I look at Kate Bingham and Burt's work, you know, this this monotonous drawing, it wasn't just for wow factor of look how many times I drew this. It, it did something that a lot of times the subversive shadow skill is about doing something more than what it is on the surface. And, and, and often, you know, you're this, whenever an artist feels like, you know, a lot of careful clerics, they feel like nobody's paying attention to climate change. Nobody's paying attention to this issue. I'm going to pay an enormous amount of attention to this piece of work that, that brings light or attention to this thing so that other people will pay just a little more attention. And I think that's kind of the shadow uh, side, uh, the, you know, the subversion of this skill to great effect, the careful cleric. All right. Okay. Let's get into part two. You got to get up. You got to get loose. You got, you've been focused too long. You just got to shake it off. Let's get ready. For the internally focused, mindful mages of magical imagination. That might be too much. I'm workshopping it. Let's, you know, tell me what you think. Uh, The eternally focused, mindful mages of magical imagination. Yeah. 
So number four, the fourth type and the first of the mages, and remember the mages, they're internally focused. They're not as concerned with real life and building. Not Creativity isn't about the craft of making a physical thing per se, even though they might make physical things. Primarily, their focus is in the world of ideas and feelings and stuff inside of you, the internal focus. So fourth type first of the mages, the outspoken orator. For these creators, the magic is in the message. Art for the orator isn't about the medium or making something pretty. It's about using your creativity to say something. Orators create to amplify a point. This type of creative is more often less concerned with aesthetics and more concerned with concepts. In fact, many orator types see beautification or decoration as frivolity. These creatives often have passionate convictions and they make cerebral work that makes you think, surprises you, or shifts your perception. That's what creativity is all about for the orator. Weapons of the trade, protest art, jokes, horror and shock often are at play. You know, a lot of horror films, they're, they're trying to wake you up to something. Um, at least the good ones are. We'll get that to the shadow skill in, in a minute. Conceptual art and design are often orators. Plot twists, nonfiction writing and essays. Okay, it's any, but it's it can be music. You know, uh, Radiohead, think about, they're very cerebral. A lot of, a lot of uh, you know, kind of, pisses me off actually that uh, so, so many critics are so critics are usually very cerebral you know and they therefore they rate highly cerebral types of creative output and I have to say I think that's very left-brained heavy and I'm not you know I, I like cerebral stuff as much as the next person especially when you when uh, it's cerebral to the point of it makes you think that produces a feeling like that happened that's messy but you know I think a lot of critics they because they are being objective with their analysis that they they're by nature they celebrate the cerebral and so you know I think cerebral gets a lot of credit uh, and, I, and I really like it, but I just feel like often, you know, I see a lot of critics when they're grading music and they're not grading for heart. They're grading only for, uh, you know, clever lyrics or what have you. Anyway, sorry, I'm not trying to uh, degrade the outspoken orator. In fact, I think that this is one of my minors, uh, and I really appreciate something that is I something constructed really well, like a joke or a story. I I'm down for that. I get I get it. I'm 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 all about it. Okay, skill points: twenty four points for cleverness, eighteen points for cunning. 16 points for pattern recognition. A lot of cleverness is just pattern recognition is, you know, when it comes to a, a really clever logo, often that's about noticing that elephant is the same shape as this coffee bean. Um, and that's, that's clever. Uh, <laughs> um, until it's done 80,000 times, but I'm okay. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, okay, so pattern recognition is a big thing for, for the orator. The call of the orator. Uh, 
It's often to bring awareness. It's usually, you know, the orator is often trying to say something, but that doesn't have to be a political point, although it can be, and it often is. It it can be a personal point. It can be a, a philosophical point. It can be anything, but often the orator is concerned with delivering a message and in, in creativity, they're they're obsessed with how powerful creative work can be in transferring an idea or a thought into somebody else. They often want to change perception. They want to fight a cause. They want to subvert a cliche. Or they just like the fun, the novelty of something clever, of of of, of a twist or, 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 you know, a surprising thing that you might say with a piece of work. But for the orator, often if a, if a piece of work doesn't say anything, then it's just not interesting to them. Common audience reactions. Well, I never thought of it like that. I never, you know, I like that <laughs> there's a lot of character work and acting going into this part of the podcast, the common audience reactions. Hmm, I never thought of it that way. This changed me. Wow, that surprised me. Never saw that coming. Um, <laughs> really makes you think. Uh, <laughs> okay, examples, Damien Hirst, the, the artist, Banksy, Lady Gaga, uh, you know, Chris Rock, Radiohead, fashion designer and illustrator Tuesday Basson, Jordan Peele. These are all people that have a message and, uh, you know, the form follows the function of delivering that message. You know, a lot of conceptual designers, they're able to do incredible things aesthetically, but they will often sacrifice the aesthetic if it gets in the way. You know, sometimes, a lot of times with the podcast art, I've realized some of my really elaborate designs get in the way of something I'm trying to say or something, you know, uh, you know, a clever way of using a picture is takes precedent even if it's a little bit uglier than something that was heavily decorated. So I, I get it. I do that sometimes. Shadow skill of the orator. So one shadow skill of the orator is the feeling of learning something new. You know, that's kind of the way that I like to think about learning. You know, when I do this podcast, if I'm giving you a tactic, often it, you know, it always is something that I believe will work. And, but I'm more concerned with how it feels to consume a tactic that seems like it's going to work. I'm more concerned with not what you learn from an analogy per se, but how it feels when a chemical combustion goes off in your head. I love the feeling of an aha moment. Uh, that's, a, that's an emotion that comes from this idea or the message. And so that's kind of a way of using cleverness or, or, or a message to not necessarily make someone think or learn or, or say something, but to make them feel something. And I, I, I love that power of the order. And that's why it's probably my minor. Okay. So the fifth and the, the fifth of all the types and the second of the internally focused mindful mages of magical imagination uh, is the healing bard. That's too hardcore for the bard. You know, if you don't know, a bard is like the musician creative type of, you know, I like in Dungeons and Dragons and in fantasy classes that they have a an artist in there. And I feel like that's just because nerds and, and, and fantasy people 
happen to be people that really respect art. You know, I've always thought it was cool that like in Zelda, there's a whole game about an ocarina, like playing a, playing a little flute. There's a whole game about being a little conductor with the wind waker thing. And I'm just like, you know, why, why are they injecting art into battle? Uh, but I always liked it. And I think it's just because we're nerds or soft humans often. Um, <laughs> so yeah, one of these fighting types is a bard. He's got his lute and he's going to play you a magical tune. Doodly doo. Look out. Um, no, but I love, I love, I'm definitely, this is probably my major. Uh, five. The healing bard. The healing bard inspires and heals with magic from the heart. These creators master the art of conjuring feelings and emotion in their targets. Creatives of this type are those who love creativity for the emotional or spiritual component of creativity. These are emo. You know, they probably like bright eyes as a kid, like I did. I still do. I love bright eyes. Um, Connor, you're awesome, man. I'm glad you're back. Uh, they, they love how art makes them feel seen and long to do the same for others. You know, when I – first time I heard – the Nick Drake album, I think it's Pink Moon is the name of the album even. Uh, I remember I put it on, first time I'd ever heard it. I was sat at the computer and I just stopped and listened for like six tracks straight. Uh, and I was like a zombie. And it was just the melancholy of that sound. It was just like, Dear God, this is exactly how I felt and I never knew it. That's what creativity is for me. For these creatives, they are often inspired to create to express the ineffable or what seems impossible to express any other way. You know, I love that about a parable. That's kind of what I think of myself as, is a parable creator. So it's kind of somewhere in between analogy and a poem. Uh, that's what I want to be about, you know, as a public speaker and an illustrator. Uh, and I love parables because the whole idea is like there's no better way to articulate this thing than through the lens of a story. Like it's so beyond the senses, which is why it's in the land of the internal. Let me scroll back up. The internally focused, mindful mages of magical imagination. That's why it's all about that because it's it's beyond senses. It's beyond words. It's capturing some intuitive spiritual thing that – only our deep consciousness has the tunage to tune into. Tunage. Um, weapons of the trade. Story, poetry, parable, aesthetics. You know, often aesthetics get trashed. You know, just, you know, like we love – come on. I just, I just thought of this, but – it really – I'm getting angry. I didn't expect to get angry on this episode, but I'm angry about how much respect abstract art has got over the years, visual art. And yet I feel like instrumental music does not get the same respect. There's like the, – I don't know. You read a review of something. It's just like sounds like aquarium noises. I don't know. I, I'm not into it. But, you know, aesthetics, a sound without words, without a message can often – just like that Nick Drake thing. It wasn't about the lyrics. I don't know what the heck he's talking about. What the heck is a pink moon, man? I don't know. But I, I felt a pink moon before. <laughs> Isolate that. That's weird. Um, put it on the internet. It's strange. Uh, analogy, parable, lyrics, music, contrast, the drama of a contrast, you know, a huge drop in a song or, you know, when things are real quiet and then boom. 
boom in a in a movie like that that really viscerally hits you. Uh, skill points: twenty six points for heart, twenty two points for passion. You know, uh, fifteen points for protection. I feel like there's a protective spirit over the healing bard. You know, the the human soul, the inner child. I feel like. The healing bard is often in touch with those things, if I do say so myself, since I said this was my major. Um, (laughs) The calling of the bard. They want to mirror other souls by revealing their own. You know, uh, George Bernard Shaw said that you see your face with a mirror, but art is a mirror for the soul. You know, there's things you hear in a song, you're like, I never knew, I never knew that about myself. And it makes me feel less alone. Grounds us and gives us meaning to life connects us as humans. You know, we're, we're, we're alone in our experience. I remember when I figured out, this was like five years old, my older brother Josh thinks this is his life. Like he's seeing it from his point of view. And I was tripped out, man, in the bathtub, just being like thinking about this to myself, just thinking, how is he, his whole life, it's from, he's, it's him. Like it was messing me up. But that art is a way of, I always think about, it's like a vessel that our, that multiple spirits can get into and occupy. And and that connection really helps us realize that, you know, it's just like this idea that, you know, everybody might see the shades of color differently and there's no real way to articulate it because you're like, well, to me it's blue, but to them blue may mean something else. And I don't know if that's actually true. I don't think it is, but that's kind of what life is like. And art, when it, when it, someone says when it F's the ineffable, I don't remember who said that, that when it, when it finally articulates a feeling that you've never had articulated, it makes us feel like we transcend and have like an out-of-body experience outside of this meat soup prison. You can tell I'm spending a little extra time in the order because it's mine. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sustenance for the soul taps us into beyond the sensory, into the intuitive or the sixth sense, the third eye, that kind of stuff. Um, Common audience reactions. Here comes my acting. (laughs) That's crying, sobbing. Uh, That's one of the love languages of, of, of the orator. I was so moved. I've never felt more seen. I can't explain it, but thank you. If you want that reaction, you might be an orator. Examples, common, common examples, comic, <laughs> Hannah Gatsby, uh, Meryl Streep, me, Joaquin Phoenix. I just put myself in between Meryl Streep and Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, I should delete that. I'm sorry. Oprah, <laughs> Russell Brand, Pixar movies, I think fit into this really well. Lisa Congdon, my friend, Drake, Adele. These are people, they're in their feelings. They're in their, they're the, they are the, uh, the emo class of creatives. The shadow skill of the feelers, kind of like the inverse of the orator. Some bards play on the audience's emotions to get them to think something differently, you know, to get them in their empathy and, and get them to realize the error of their ways or to shift their perspective. Sometimes if we pull at the heartstrings, they are connected to the deep centers of our brain and, and those feelings can, can really serve a message. Um, and that's kind of a way of flipping it on its head. So that is the bard. 
Okay, number six, the last of our types, the third of the internally focused mindful mages of magical imagination. No, I like that name, actually. It's very <laughs> mysterious. Uh, number six. The expanding alchemist. The alchemist deals in the dark arts of the new, the cutting edge, and the never before seen. For this type, creativity is about making something from nothing. This type of creative sees the primary purpose of creativity uh, to do, it's about doing things that have never been done before. You know, the, the, the definition of creativity for them is original. It's something that's never been seen. And I think this is a very pervasive definition of creativity. And I think it's an amazing aspect of creativity. But again, because it's not my primary one, I'm going to downgrade it. I'm just kidding. I'm not, no, honestly, I, there, when I've eaten a dish, I've eaten some food that's unlike anything I've ever experienced. It's one of my favorite things. When I see a movie that I've, and I'm like, I, that is, I can't even, I have no frame of reference for where that came from. I love it. As someone with ADHD, it is one of the best cures to boredom is something so off the wall and so out of left field that you, you never saw it coming. I love it, but it's not really the thing I do. But I do think that a lot of people, especially outside of the creative world, they think that's what creativity means. And I just highlight that because a lot of people, this isn't what creativity is about. Creativity is about a lot of other things. And we went over all those other things, but for the alchemist, the person who wants to create something from nothing, their weapons are using mediums that are not what they're made for. You know, doing something with a pencil that you didn't know possible. You know, the first time I saw, there's this band I really like called Sigur Ross. Um, you know, half of the people listening to this podcast hear me qualify a band and think, dude, every you're not so original that <laughs> we don't know who Sigur Ross is. And then the other half has never heard of them. So just give me a break. Um, Sigur Ross, they have this album cover for one of their, I think it was their second album, and it's this inverted Bic pen drawing. And when I found out that that was a uh, a Bic pen, like a ballpoint pen drawing, I was like, well, I don't understand how you do that with a, with a Bic pen. Uh, and then I was in college just trying to replicate that for ages, uh, <laughs> as was several of my friends. Okay. Using mediums in a, in a subversive way that, that, you know, finding a new way to use something, breaking the medium, uh, fashion, you know, a lot of people that are into this, they love fashion. They love to push forward in what you think could look good. That has never looked good before. You know, these fashion shows are a great example of the alchemist of like trying to push the boundaries. I think a lot of people in VR and AR, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, those are the type of creatives that are drawn to those worlds are the alchemists. They want to do things that have never been done. 3D artists, uh, Ableton, Ableton, Ableton uh, Live, the music software. I always think that, that things that are made in Ableton sound like music in HD because they can do things with algorithms that are just not possible. You know, when you hear something chopped and screwed, uh, a, a piece of music that just found, sounds like it was put through a printer, something like that, that, that there's couldn't be, it's just not created by humans. It's created through Ableton. And I love stuff like that. Um, and then people are making music with AI. The music that I've heard made from AI where they've like digested all of Elvis's music and then had a computer make an Elvis song. 
I'm so into it because it's so unexpected. Like it doesn't, a human wouldn't make it. So it's just so surprising and I'm, I'm down for that. So these are weapons of the trade. Skill points, 24 points innovation, 22 points vision, you know, the ability to see what's coming next. Like there's this power of the alchemist where they have a bird's eye view of the dot to dot of the past of these are the things, this is how things have connected and built on each other. And they use that to see the bigger picture, just like a kid does when, you know, some kids, when they finish three dots on the 10 dot to dots, they're like, it's a bunny. That's what the alchemist does. Um, not to demean it. It's cool. <laughs> Uh, I keep going back and forth. You know, half of the time I'm like, alchemists are the best. And the other time I'm like making fun of it. I'm making fun of myself. Okay. 15, adept learner. A lot of alchemists, they, they got 15 points for adept learner in that they can learn things quickly, which means they can be on the cutting edge. As soon as something comes out, they love to learn the new software. They love to new, learn the, the, the next thing. Jim Henson, I think, was at least a minor in alchemy, the, uh, the creative alchemy thing. So... And actually, you know, a lot of the things he did that I liked the most were when he was collaborating with a bard who was like a storyteller, who was, you know, primarily obsessed with story. Um, I felt like the best hints and stuff came out when that was a combination of those two. Um, the call of the alchemist. What What is being an alchemist, a creative alchemist all about? It's about originality. It's about showing the people, showing people that we have infinite potential. That, that there is new, there are new things under the sun. I always, that's just not true, okay? And I hate, that's almost a religious statement because uh, it's from a sacred text, but I, it's just not true. Like AR didn't exist uh, 4,000 years ago. I'm sorry. Like I agree that, you know, I am kind of of the mind that everything's a remix is that, but when you put two old things together, you do get a new thing. And a lot of technology works that way, right? Um, so it, I think it's not binary. There isn't anything new under the sun until you put two old things together and all of a sudden, boom, bada boom, there you go, a new species. It happens all the time. Uh, birds and the bees, look it up. You'll learn what that's all about when you're older. I think this, what is this podcast for like seven-year-olds? I don't know. It's not. The, the call of the alchemist is to inspire the hope of progress. You know, what happened before doesn't have to determine what's next. I think that when we see new things, it, it opens our minds to, you know, there are new tomorrows. There are new possibilities. You know, I get a lot of hope from knowing that, you know, I learned, I learned this from Freakonomics back in the day when we were all traveling on horses in the cities, like the horse manure and, and, and all of that, uh, was destroying the city, destroying, polluting the city. It was this huge thing. They did this huge worldwide convention to figure out what are we going to do about the horse problem? And they were basically like, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, because they were waiting for the car to be invented and that, and that gives me hope for how we're going to do that with cars. You know, something that when we, an alchemist, you know, so often an alchemist is a fantasy writer that's writing about what the future will be. And that's what inspires the scientists. Like it's, it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes. It's a beautiful thing that uh, the imagination without the science, how often that leads the way. It's amazing pushes the boundaries of what's acceptable or possible. Often the alchemist is, is pushing 
forward into things we didn't know were okay and and changing the way the society thinks sparks imagination and wonder, which in my book is always a good idea. Common audience reactions, your last little bit of my acting. I know this is your favorite part of the episode. I don't even know why I put it in there. I like it though. Uh, Common audience reaction. Well, I've never seen that before. (laughs) So dumb. Uh, I didn't know it was possible. I couldn't believe my eyes. Knocked my socks off. Um, (laughs) Examples. Jim Henson, we talked about that. You know, uh, he was real techie. He was into it. Beyonce is always pushing those boundaries of what music is. And and all, uh, yeah, James Cameron, Lady Gaga. You know, James Cameron, I think he's primarily focused on pushing film where it's never gone before. Uh, and, and, you know, if he was so hung up on the story, which he got a lot of flack about that from Avatar, you know, people saying this is like Pocahontas, like it's the same story. Uh, at least that's the the critique I heard of it. Uh, if he was so focused on the story, if he was playing by soccer rules in his basketball game, he would have never pushed cinema forward in the way that he did. And that was his job. He was the alchemist. He wasn't. He wasn't the the orator or the bard. Uh, I think Lady Gaga probably at least minors or or majors in this. Uh, Jordan Peele is, I think, a minor in this. Pixar's a minor in this. Wachowski sisters with the Matrix, I think, majored in you know not just story that we had never heard, but the technology to to do the whole you know three sixty. Uh, bullet shot. I can't remember. There's a there's a word for it. Uh, but they they invented that tech for that filmmaking. Stefan Sagmeister and Jessica Walsh. I think these are the types of designers that are alchemists. And you know, back to the fashion shows. Like I think a lot you see a lot of this with in the world of fashion is so much about what's next. Shadow skill. Oh, I love this shadow skill. Shows us something totally new that that shows us something age old and true. You know, it's how Star Wars talks about humanity. You know, Zootopia, the Disney movie was about racism, but it was a totally invented world that we'd never seen before. And I love when fantasy takes us away and sweeps us away into a world that we've never seen to help us confront and get some distance and escape before we face the reality within the deeper underpinnings of the story. And uh, that is the power of new. That's when I feel, that's the part of me that's an alchemist, is I love to get someone's attention with something that they've never seen or something that seems surprising uh, and something that seems totally different to show them something that we've always known is true. It's a great way of reminding us how a cliche is true. Is, is saying it in a way that you've never heard. Um, yeah, so that's the shadow skill of The Alchemist. Okay, so that's the creative classes, your creative personality type, your definition of what creativity is all about. You know, there's a lot of talk about the Enneagram. If you've never taken it, it's it's a pretty old kind of 
framework for understanding personality. And uh, I've got my qualms about it. You know, I don't, there's, you know, they say you're one through nine, you're one of nine personalities. And I just say, no, that can't be true. Uh, that's just not true. You know, there's, there's never been a human that was the exact same as somebody else. And just that range of diversity is one of my favorite things about being alive. And so I reject the premise, but I actually like a lot of things about the Enneagram. I think they give you a lot of good questions. And ultimately, the thing I like about it the most is that the premise of that personality test is so different to other personality tests because the whole idea of it, it's less of a personality test and it's more of a persona test. It's more of saying, how were you hurt and how did you develop a personality to cope and, and get your needs met of love and attention and affirmation? That's where so much of your personality comes from. It's grounded on this idea that uh, there's something more fundamental about who you are and your value than your ego or your personality or how it manifests externally. And I think that there's something really beautiful about that because naming your persona, it helps you see it and it gives you something to work with and bounce off of. And I want this test to be the same. I don't want these to be your new values and your new rules. I want them to be something that you name so you can see it and work with it and ultimately transcend it. That's what I like about the Enneagram is that it's saying, yeah, you're a three, but you don't have to be a slave to your threeness. And in the same way, you're not a slave to being an alchemist or a bard or a, uh, an orator or whatever, whatever. You're not a slave to it. But once you see where you've been, that can inform where you're going to go next. And ultimately, I believe that creativity is about showing us things about being a human that we never knew. You know, I was thinking the other day about, I was talking about comedians and uh, I was thinking about how, you know, Nick Offerman, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, he's like the woodworking comedian. Dimitri Martin's like the drawing comedian. Fred Armisen's like the drumming comedian. And just how... Uh, you know, they have all these little minors. Their major's comedy. Their minor is uh, drumming or, or drawing or woodworking. And we never thought, nobody knew that woodworking could be funny, right? We never knew that that was possible before Ron Swanson. And, uh, and, and I just want you to take this experience as you, as you try to identify your major and your minor I want you to ultimately think about synthesizing that with things that I couldn't possibly know about you and let these questions and let these frameworks and let these boxes be something that helps define not who you are, but where you're going next.
Hey, I hope you freaking love this episode. I had the best time making it. It's one of my all-time favorite episodes. It's actually been in the works for probably over a year. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I hope you love it. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for making our soundtrack and Jordan Aaron for editing this show. So lovely-ish. And uh, <laughs> also go check out my Instagram at Andy J Pizza. Go follow along there because um, we're going to be doing an episode recording live on Instagram. And I think it's going to be cool. We might even do it kind of regularly. I, mi- I, you know, that's one of the things about the monologue episodes that's tough is that unlike going and doing a talk, I'm not seeing anybody and I'm not reacting and I'm not, you know, it's just doesn't feel so lonely. So this is, you know, we're going to try that. So go follow along Andy J Pizza um, on Instagram. Thanks to all of you for listening. And until we speak again, stay pepped up. That's so, that's the most chill stay pepped up I've ever said. Let me, let me rectify that. And until we speak again, until next week, stay pepped up.